Let's pray together, shall we? God, thank you for the scripture. Thank you uh, that you speak to us. Thank you that we live in a world where a resurrection has happened and that you are pleased to make yourself known to people. Uh, So God, we open ourselves to you and pray that you would pour out your spirit on us and make yourself known to us now. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, let me add my welcome uh, to those of others. If you're a guest with us, my name's John. I'm one of, the, one of the pastors here, and it's so great to be worshiping with you. And as we uh, uh, continue our post-Easter series uh, this week, we're reminded it's a series looking at all of the appearances Jesus made after his resurrection. And uh, there, there, was a, there was a point to this. You know, on Easter Sunday, we kind of grappled with this idea that uh, when, when that angel came and announced to the women at the tomb, he is not here, he has risen. And that was the very first time in human history that resurrection from the dead moved from speculative religious idea to historical claim. And the claim now on this side of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is that we live in a world where a resurrection has happened and that Jesus Christ is alive right now. Historical claim. I'm not sure why you're here. That's why I'm here. He's alive. And all of these appearances after the resurrection really amount to Jesus preparing his followers to to kind of grapple with this, to grapple with the reality that he is alive right now, and then work through in their minds and their hearts all of the implications uh, for them that that emerge from the fact that he's now alive. And if you remember the story, when that angel met the women at at the tomb on that first day, the text says that they were terrified and bewildered. You know, terrified, they just saw an angel, really not just a story in a book or something. They had an encounter. So that that explains the terrified part. The bewildered part is a bit more interesting, isn't it? I think the message was just starting to work into their their minds, into into their hearts. He has risen. Whoa. If if he's alive right now, then that means... And they're thinking through all of the details of their lives, right? And that's bewildering. And that process has been going on in human beings who've come to Christ ever since. This bewilderment that the resurrection is real, that Jesus is alive, that he has come back for us. And then this great reality that says, wow, if that's true, it is the most important thing for everyone everywhere. And after appearing to the women, he appeared to all of his disciples in the upper room. Well, minus Thomas. Remember, Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas' reaction to that was, man, unless I put my finger in the holes in his hands and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And then Jesus appeared to all of the apostles, Thomas included, and afforded Thomas that opportunity. And now this, the third appearance of Jesus, to seven of the apostles who went on a little fishing trip. So listen to this story. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter... 
Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God uses broken people to reach the world, and he wants to use us. God uses broken people to reach the world, and he wants to use us, me, and you. This is a pretty simple three-point sermon. Avoiding Jesus, encountering Jesus, if I had it to do again, I'd say re-encountering Jesus and following Jesus. Avoiding, re-encountering, and following. Here's what the, the text says. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. There's an entire world of context behind this, this phrase, And it's uh, important to understand that because it unpacks the meaning of the entire scripture we read this morning. Back in Jesus' time in the ancient world, the way school worked for Jewish children was that both boys and girls would go to school at the local synagogue. And they would go every day to school, uh, except for the Sabbath days, of course, and they would progress in their education until uh, the, the girls hit their bat mitzvah, Uh, And then a year later, the boys hit their bar mitzvah, and they progressed to a different stage of learning. That was kind of emerging adulthood at that point. And the time in between the bar mitzvah and the age of 30 was understood to be the time of growing into an adult. And at age 30 was when you became a contributing member to society. That was kind of the arc of, of growth in that tradition. 
But at the bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah, the, the boys and girls parted ways in their educational process. The girls went on to study the Psalms and forms of worship. And the boys then entered a track to discern whether they might have what it takes to be a rabbi. And that was the entire focus of the educational process. And becoming a rabbi was a bit like being drafted to play in the NBA. I mean, there were just a very few people that ever made it to that level. But the boys' education was entirely oriented around that from that point on. And there were drop points along the way, a bit like standardized testing, but not. And there would be tests. And the teachers and leaders would come to the boys and say, okay, you can either continue on, or they might say, you know, we, we think you might best serve the Lord by returning to the family business. And those were the drop points, either continue on in education or return to the family business. Now, if, if a boy made it all the way through that formal education process at the synagogue, then they would earn the right to apply to study with a rabbi. And they would make applications with different rabbis that they respected, whom they wanted to be like. Not just to learn what that rabbi knew, but the whole idea was to become like the rabbi. A competency and character. A full formation kind of thing. So they'd apply to different rabbis, and the rabbis would study their applicants carefully. And if a rabbi chose a student to come and study with them, the rabbi would send word back to that student who had applied with a simple message. It was the acceptance letter. Come follow me. And instantly the student would know, oh, the rabbi believes that I can be like him. And it was an invitation to come and, and study. Now the apostles' uh, journey was that somewhere along that process they got dropped. Somewhere along that process, the leaders and synagogue teachers looked at them and said, you know, we think you might serve the Lord best by returning to the family business which in the, case of, in the case of the apostles was primarily fishing. Right? They were all fishermen. And this is why the calling of the disciples was, was such an important thing. If you ever wondered why when Jesus was walking down that beach and he looked at some fishermen and he said, come follow me. If you ever wondered why in the world would they just drop everything and go follow him? Well, this is why. You know, they weren't expecting it. They'd been dropped from the system years ago, gone back to the family business, and here comes the greatest rabbi of all time to their place of business. He looks him in the eye and says, come follow me. Translated, here's Jesus looking at me saying, I believe that with my help, you can be like me. They drop everything and go. It would be a bit like a basketball player working his way up to some kind of D-league semi-pro team Right, playing for a couple years, and then the coach saying, sorry, you don't, you don't have what it takes. You should really go back to that business degree from college. And so the player does, does that for a couple, three years, and then suddenly, Stefan Curry knocks on his door. Hey, I, I know what the D-League coach said, but yeah, he was totally wrong. I want you to come play with me because I know, I believe that with my help, you can be like me. So what do you say? You're like, what? Yes, yes. This, this was the apostles' answer to that. So the apostles followed Jesus. Then Jesus died. They all bailed on him again. Then he appeared to them in the upper room, and then again with Thomas. And then we get to this line. Peter, I'm going out to fish. 
translated, I've had enough of this. I'm going back to the family business where I'm supposed to be. Who's with me? And six others, seven of the apostles of the 12, since they added one after Judas' death, seven of 12 said, yeah, we're, we're done here. We're, we're out. And, and that's this. I mean, that's, that's this. They're avoiding Jesus, even though they've, they've seen him Twice, by going fishing, by returning to the family business, they're completely avoiding Jesus and Jesus' call on their lives. And you know, if you've tried to follow Jesus, you know that this story is your story. We are masters at this. Absolute masters at avoiding Jesus. Right? Bailing on Jesus, running from God, drifting away, whatever language we want to use in this. You know, there are seven apostles out in that boat, and they caught nothing all night long. Are you kidding me? Seven professional fishermen. They've been doing this since they could walk. And they're all in the boat, all doing this all night, and they get skunked. Nothing. Nada. Right? Is there, is there any surprise there? I mean, Jesus himself said it, right? Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Yeah, they didn't catch any physical fish that night, but you're, you're getting the spiritual parallel here, right? I mean, Jesus called his disciples to fish for people. They bailed on that call. Now they can't even catch real fish, fish even though they're pros at that. There's no catch apart from Jesus, neither to feed ourselves nor to help other people. We can't do it on our own. It's not ours to do. In the midst of this story, right in the, in the place of their greatest avoidance of Jesus, when they are hoping, beyond hope, that he won't see them anymore, he shows up. They don't recognize him. They experience him as a strange guy on the beach asking them questions. They're 100 yards out. They can't tell who he is. Hey, guys, you catch anything tonight? No. Hey, why don't you throw your net on the right side of the boat? You'll find something there. I mean, the surprising thing is that the apostles are not dumbstruck by the audacity of the stranger on the beach. They're seven pros doing this again since they could walk, like they didn't think of trying the other side of the boat. But rather than getting mad, they just, they just do it. They throw, they throw it right over there. I mean, is this not a sign of complete desperation? Because in, in their spirits, they know. They know that they've run away. And they know that they're, they're trying really, really hard to make everything work. And they're getting nowhere. And Jesus shows up right there. I mean, it's a bit of, of a kind of spiritual, emotional ADD. Have you experienced this? I know that I have. When I've walked away from Jesus and I'm trying to do this, that, or the other thing kind of on my own, 
And in my worst moments, when I know in my mind I am actively avoiding Jesus. You know, then you have these ideas in that place. You're like, well, I'll try this. No, oh wait, no, no, maybe this will work. No, no, really, that thing, well, this angle, no, uh, oh, oh, that's a good idea. That, you've experienced this. I mean, right? It's this emotional, spiritual ADD that goes on inside to the point where some strange dude from the beach says, hey, why don't you try this? And you think, great idea. Let's do that. What? I mean, I, this is our story. The apostles are broken, running from God, avoiding Jesus. But all the while, they have this thing in the back of their minds. They remember what Jesus said. He said this to them long before. Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll fish for people. You know, they bailed on that, went back to the family business. Gave it their best try, caught absolutely nothing. And of course, this miraculous haul of fish, right? You do know that when you're avoiding Jesus, it's very difficult to recognize Jesus, don't you? That's what was going on in them until something happened that was way beyond them. They re-encountered Jesus. And it was John, the, the beloved disciple, who said at first, It's the Lord! You know, impetuous Peter throws on his cloak, dives in the water 100 yards out, swims toward Jesus. Kudos to him for that. You know, he knows he's caught. At least he's moving toward Jesus again. And they're all feeling sheepish. I mean, the story goes on to say that toward the end. They don't ask him who he is because they know. And they know that he knows that they've been avoiding him. It's all this in the story. It's my story, it's your story. But they encountered Jesus. See, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. They hadn't caught anything all night, but evidently Jesus had because he already had a fish there and was cooking it on the fire. Jesus can catch his own fish. Yet instead of a reprimand for bailing on him, instead of a stern talking to for avoiding him, Jesus just asks them for some of the fish that they caught. Invites them to the fire, to a meal. And really by extending this invitation, Jesus is recalling them to their God-given purpose. Even though he didn't say it, you can hear it, can't you? Come follow me. Come follow me. I believe that with my help, you can be like me. They had an encounter with Jesus where he called them back to following him. It's our story. It's my story. It's yours. So where are you avoiding Jesus? Right? How are you running from God? Where's that place in your heart? What excuses are you allowing to gain traction in your soul, in your spirit? How is the culture around us or just life in general distracting you from that call you knew you sensed. And we're, we're masters at avoiding God. We are. 
And it's not new to God. Though it pains God's heart, it's not new to God. And the call is to no longer avoid, but to follow by re-encountering Jesus. That's the thing. Right? Avoiding God has been with us since the very beginning. The story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, After they ate from the fruit, the Lord walked in the garden in the cool of the day, the text says. And he couldn't find Adam and Eve. And he cried out, where are you? And they said, we heard you. But we were afraid. So we hid. And human beings have been hiding ever since. Avoiding, running, allowing the drift away from God to happen in our lives, whatever it might be. But friends, the good news, the good news of Easter is that the curtain in the temple was torn in two. God made a definitive statement to the world. He didn't tear that curtain in two for his good. He did it for our good to say definitively that no longer does there need to be any separation between the people of God and the presence of God. Because the debt has been paid. You don't have to run anymore. You don't have to avoid anymore. It's all invitation. Turn back. Turn back. Right? I, I know this about me, so I presume you know it about you too. There's a big part of you that wants to run from God, and, and you feel it. I, I, I still combat times where I do this intentionally, and I know I'm doing it, and I wonder why I'm doing it. You know those times? I often wander off unintentionally, saying yes to a friend or some other kind of invitation that invites me to go fishing, right? That results in avoiding Jesus. And the amazing thing in uh, in this story is that what Jesus did reveals his tenderness and love for, for us, for you, for me. The beauty of this story is that Jesus pursued his followers already committed to to him to their place of greatest avoidance. He didn't wait for them to come back from the fishing trip to say, hey Jesus, we, we, we went fishing. He went and met them on the beach. See, God wants to use broken people to reach the world. And God wants to use you. Not just the person next to you. Not all those other people whom you think have it all figured out, who really don't, by the way. God wants to use you, me. And this is it. There's a song I love that has a line in it that says, perspective is a lovely atmosphere. It's a wonderful thought. Getting right a renewed perspective is a lovely atmosphere, a wonderful place to live. So if you would, if you're willing, don't have to if you don't want, if you're willing, close your eyes. Take a deep breath. And bring up on the screen of your life uh, a screen, I'm sorry, the screen of your mind, your present life. 
kind of whatever comes to mind. Think an executive summary here. Broad strokes. Right, your current reality. You don't have to edit it. Right? You don't have to send any power to the deflector shields right now. You don't have to keep anybody else out or what others think of you at bay because it's just you. So the, the broad strokes. What's going well? What's not going so well? What's confusing? What are you celebrating? What are you grieving? Now imagine in your mind that you died three days ago and are with Jesus. From that vantage point, that future place, how do you view your present reality? Your commitments? your concerns, the things that are taking the most bandwidth in your life right now, your mind and and your spirit. What's right with the present? What's wrong with the present? What do you need to do more of in the present? What's missing in the present? You can open your eyes. Let me suggest to you that the places where you're avoiding Jesus are the tip of the spear of spiritual formation in your life. Because God is not just trying to get us to think right biblical thoughts. Nor even to believe all the right things or in some kind of checkbox list. Though doctrine is very important. What God is doing in us, and I hope we're all always clear on this. God is making us new people. It's not just kind of toe in the church line. God is remaking our desires such that someday in the future we will no longer have misdirected desires and our sole desire, chief desire, will be God. God's doing away with those idols that we might desire God, that we might desire the kingdom. So wherever those points are where we're avoiding Jesus are those points of greatest tension with the most significant work God wants to do in you. This is why the scripture invites us to things like confess your sin one to another so that you may be healed. Right? Wish I could press a button and in an instant make the church a thoroughly safe place to confess our sin. If you can play a part in making the church, making this church safer as a place for others to confess sin, 
please do that. Be a safe person to others in that. They were feeling pretty sheepish because they knew they'd bailed. I can relate to that. I bet you can too. But Jesus comes and we re-encounter him and he he reinstates them all just with this invitation to come to the table again. Come, eat. Taste and see that the Lord is good. God uses broken people to reach the world and God wants to use you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that uh, whatever is our personal beach of avoidance, where we've gone fishing, that not only your desire, but uh, what you've done in the past, what you've demonstrated, is that you come to us right at that place and meet us there. So Jesus, we don't want to avoid you anymore. We don't want to turn from you. We want to stop running from you, and we want to turn toward you. So, Father, empower us by your Spirit to do that. Uh, Free us from any bondage that might have us stay in bondage. Free us from any lies that might have us rely upon ourselves or think that we have to clean ourselves up somehow before we come to you because we know that those are lies because you came to us in the midst of our fallenness. While we were still in our sins, you died for us. God, reveal your goodness to us and help us become like you. We love you, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.